what's up guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls episode number 29. My name is James Scully. Today on the podcast, I sit down with author David Shields about his recent published pictorial called War is Beautiful, where David took a look at several decades worth of photographs that the New York Times has published about their war correspondence on the front page and decided that the New York Times is manipulating the American public in ways that we might not be aware of. David explains exactly what he means by that and also explains that this is now a reason why he doesn't read the New York Times anymore, one of his papers of record growing up. It was a fantastic interview. It's so much so that I'm going to split it into two parts. I'm doing this because I've gotten some feedback recently on podcasts where people say that 90 minutes of an interview is too long for them to sit and listen to in one section. So I'm going to break down David's interview and play the first half of it today and then release the second half on December 10th. I also want to say that you can get these podcasts on SoundCloud, on iTunes, wherever you get them. Search for The Wall Breakers and subscribe. If you do so, rate us, review us, please. Tell a friend, tell two friends, word of mouth, only way that these podcasts are getting spread. You'll also notice that I took a slight hiatus from podcasting in the last month. I did not release a podcast after November 1st. I did that because I had been working on a TEDx presentation that I'm going after next year. We'll see if I get it. Hopefully I do. If I don't, I've learned something great about myself in the process as well. It was just a busy month. I started a new gig, a little bit of a hiatus, but I'm back today with Breaking Walls episode number 29 featuring author David Shields. I won't take up too much more time. I'm going to get right into this interview. I'll have some more pertinent information on the back end. So please stay tuned for David Shields and my conversation about his pictorial, War is Beautiful. Hey guys, welcome back to Breaking Walls, and my guest today is now 19th author. You've written, you've written 19 yeah, books. Yeah, this is my 19th book. And international best-selling author, David Shields. And I wanted to speak with David today about his new pictorial, War is Beautiful, which is why you stopped reading the New York Times, basically. Well, more or less. That, I mean, maybe that's a little bit of the hook of the book. You know, I think on the cover of the book, James, I say, you know, here's all these pictures I looked at. And the punchline is sort of, I no longer read the New York Times, which is indeed true. It's not any big moral stance. I just found myself, after spending many years researching these pictures, I looked at 9,000 photographs, 1,000, you know, 9,000 front page A1 New York Times pictures from 91 through 2013. 4,500 color picks, 1,000 combat picks, 700 pictures that fit my definition of glamorizing war photographs. And, you know, I found myself unable to continue subscribing to the paper. It seems to me a relatively serious act of bad faith, the way that the New York Times ostensibly covering war, in my view, is subtly glamorizing war. Now you've written, this is your 19th book, you've been a teacher. Do you remember, and we spoke a few moments ago off air about the word undercurrent. Do you remember the early moments where you were looking at things in life and saying, okay, well something, something else is lying beneath the surface here. I can feel it. I have to delve into this more. That seems to be a specific personality trait that you would have. 
Right. Do you remember well, early moments like that? No, you're right. <laughs> I'm just laughing because my wife would, you know, that's all I do with her is point out undercurrents of things, either between her and me or between us and our daughter or between Obama and the press or whatever. I missed her big theme. But uh, where does that go back to? My God, I think part of it is, you know, both of my parents were journalists uh, on, the West, on the West Coast. They were sort of a political active journalists. And part of journalism, in part, they were sort of not exactly communist, but they were heading in that direction. Okay. And any kind of Marxist theory is always sort of reading for underlying causes, you know. Also, I think personally, this might seem a little off track, but as a kid I had a really bad stutter and still have traces of the stutter now. And as a kid, I do think having a really profound stutter pushed me to have very sensitive antennae for communication and miscommunication. I feel like I hear tone and undercurrent and subtext in my view really well, but at the very least I have a sort of paranoid ears for subtext, tone, language, communication, miscommunication. So I feel like as a very, very young boy, you know, five, six, seven, eight, I was always hearing subtext. Part of because in a way, I wasn't exactly mute. I, was, I never had that bad of a stutter, but it was pretty bad. It dominated my childhood, and in many ways, I would say, formed my personality. And so um, trying to think of where I'd go back to, you know, basically, being part of a very political family that was looking at root causes of poverty, prejudice, war, and being a kid who had a really bad speech problem, and in a way, not being able to speak on the surface, I got very attuned to sort of depth and to what we're calling the undercurrent. Do you even think that because you were self-conscious about your voice, it caused you to speak less and listen more at what is that really what you're saying that That's you were forced point, to listen James. you said it much more concisely and much better than i did precisely so speaking less i became a better listener and i think it's part like i you know i'm not exactly a journalist but i have done reportorial things mm -hmm. and i just like to ask a lot of questions partly as a way to take the pressure off of myself as the speaker, like, I'll just ask you a bunch of questions, and then you can talk, and then I, I as a kid who had trouble talking, you know, and then, then I don't have to carry the burden of the big communicator. Sure. But I think the way that you said it is really beautiful, that basically, because I wasn't terribly eager to be chatting away, I was listening very carefully. I think that's a really good point. Coming from the kind of background you did, a journalistic background, where you're growing up in a household that, to me, would be very self-aware. You're discussing politics and social constructs that are involved with those politics because any social construct is very layered, it tends to be. Right. And your writing has been that way. You know, you looked at an NBA season and... Which is all about subtext. Exactly. It's yeah. A great, it's a great... In a way, I think of this book as being very closely aligned to this book that you're mentioning, Black Planet, mm -hmm. absolutely. When we talk about subtext, and specifically with the New York Times, when was the first time that you were sitting with the Times in your lap, or, and you were looking at a glamorized war photo? And that's a very astute observation, obviously, but the New York Times is in the business of selling papers. Totally. And 
there's a thing that you picked up on where any kind of, let's say, death in photo is not seen as hysterical, but uh, very subdued, muted, mournful. And above all, to me, dignified and strangely ennobling, that the sacrifice somehow seems, in my view, so many of these times picks are sending the message that the death is somehow worth it. The sacrifice is noble. And that's across the board now, whether it be soldier's death or civilian's death, whether it be an American civilian or you finding it similar? I mean, it, you, know, you know, you can find pictures that contradict my thesis. And some people even find some pictures in the book that, in their view, aren't as fully evidentiary as I claim. But it's pretty solid. Like, for instance, I don't know, the, the two pictures that recently come to mind is just that you and I are speaking on Monday, November 16th, I believe. And the picture, I was just stunned by the picture on November the 15th. I, I passed by a newsstand in New York with, with the Sunday cover of the Times. I don't know if you saw it, that picture of the, the two crystal glasses. There was a a wine glass that had been shattered and a wine glass that had not been shattered. And that was the Times front page lead color photo of the Paris bombing. Interesting. And you know, on some level it was a striking photo, but, and you're a graphic designer, mm -hmm. James, and so you probably have insights that I don't have in terms of why that picture or all these pictures were chosen. Sure. But to me that was sending, I don't know, Again, I'm certainly capable of overreading stuff, of paranoid readings, of, uh, but to me that picture, the first thing I thought of, I don't know what, what other people thought, but it evoked to me Kristallnacht, you know, the night of a, a broken glass, you know, mm -hmm. which was in yeah. a way, in many ways, the beginning of World War II. Yeah. Before. It was literally the night of broken glass. And second of all, it was trying to, that image to me, I guess I'm arguing for can we please worry about what subliminal messages these pictures are sending? On some level, people could say, oh, just relax, it's a picture. But I want to say, can we please worry about these pictures a bit? And to me, that picture was saying, civilization is really pretty, and war is really necessary. And in a strange way, it was evocative to me of Kristallnacht. And I just think... Really? I mean, I, I can't, the, first, the first reaction I had was, really? This was the picture you chose of the Paris bombings? Was the beautiful contrast between, in a way, a civilized wine glass and a broken wine glass. You know, they have destroyed our beloved Paris. That's sending a not-so-encrypted message. About what it means to be a Parisian? What it means to be a part of a capitalist Western democracy. Okay. And it, to me, it's really in solidarity with France saying, this is an act of war. You know, it, France's response was, right. this is an act of war. And to me, there's a subtle bellicosity, a subtle warmongering, a not-so-subtle flag-waving and cheerleading for clash of civilizations in that picture. And I guess what I would say is, okay, if that's your stance, own that stance. Like, that's interesting. Like, the Times, like, think of that picture were on the cover of, say, the Wall Street Journal or USA Today, or it led the Fox News broadcast. You know, in a way, I would expect that from an overt right-wing propaganda noise machine. Like, that's, at least those organs of media 
have the integrity of owning their own political bias. Like, if they don't pretend to be other than right-wing, more or less, everybody knows, I hope, that USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, and say, especially, say, Fox News, are overtly slanted. And that is what they're about, which is, in a way, a more European tradition, to own the slantedness of your right. own organization, which I sort of like. Whereas the Times has carved out this very odd role in American culture, this sort of pseudo-godlike arbiter, impartial umpire, paper of record, all the, the news that's fit to print, the first draft of history, etc., etc., in which the Times pretends to be centrist or neutral or objective or even slightly center-left. And these pictures, to me, are sending a very contradictory and very mixed message. Do you believe that because they're in the business of selling newspapers, it's impossible for them to be unbiased? Because it's not as though they're just writing this. It's not even just opinion at some point. It's opinion plus marketing, plus totally. research, plus the need to take in profit. Totally. And there are many, if I were pointing this out about, first of all, obviously the Wall Street Journal, it would not be news. Or if I were pointing this out about the Kansas City Star, it wouldn't particularly matter because the Kansas City Star does not is not the most influential newspaper in the English-speaking world. The Times, in a strange way, is aware of the fact that still now, though its influence is enormously declining, it still, in a strange way, sets the cultural template of that day's news. Certainly in the U.S., and to a certain degree, in English-speaking journalism, but um, of course the Times is selling papers. There are many, many reasons why the Times has increasingly been drawn toward this gesture. I think, you know, there's, a, to me, a great tradition of great combat photography. Matthew Brady's Civil War photos, Robert Kappa's World War II photos, many journalists during Vietnam, including New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning photographers, took searing photographs of Vietnam, but for a whole series of, of reasons, which I can briefly adumbrate, embedding a photojournalist with the troops, I think has had a huge effect on what pictures get taken and what pictures get disseminated. The decline of print journalism, the rise of the web, and I think the New York Times and the U.S. government are in a weird synchronicity. They sort of are working hand in glove. The Times wants access to the highest levels of the U.S. government. The government uses the Times as a kind of mouthpiece for its own policies. And I saw that the government's courting the Times, the Times is courting the government, creates a very problematic symbiosis in my view. And so there's those are some of the reasons. I mean, these aren't obscure reasons. If the Times every day ran unbelievably bl bloody, visceral pics on the front cover, probably subscriptions would fall precipitously. I do think there is a middle ground between, on the one hand, unbelievably violent, grotesque images and flag-waving and cheerleading pictures. I think the Times can... In a way, it's kind of friendly fire for me. It's a sort of lover's quarrel with the Times. I'd like the Times to, you know, I like those Times pictures to be more aware 
of the undercurrents of the message they're sending. I mean, as recently as November 12th, which would have been, I guess, Thursday, mm -hmm. there was this, to me, stunning photograph on the front page of the Times. Again, I'm not subscribing, but I'm seeing these pictures on newsstand. Um, I thought it was just, I have it on, on my phone if you want to show it on your website sure. or something. Is this amazing picture of these, uh, a burial, I believe, I forget exactly what country, I think probably Syria. And the picture is a, a burial of some wounded civilians. It's the front page lead color picture on Thursday, November 12th. And the picture is of four stunningly beautiful. Middle Eastern women burying the, I believe, sort of Syrian civilians. And it looks like a sort of, it's basically war photo as fashion shoot. Right. Like these women, they look like they just stepped out of the most elegant fashion shoot. And that picture to me is, I mean, that's my book. War in this picture seems beautiful. Why is the picture always of a stunningly beautiful woman? What complicated mixed messages is that is that sending? I think a lot of ways you're speaking about inauthenticity too. Because, so? well, if you think about any newspaper, although you could slant one way or another in sure. your, and every paper in history has slanted one way or another, I think, through the course of their history. But there's, to me as a, as a, a citizen of America, there is a, an underlying responsibility that the New York Times has to Show me the truth. And as an American citizen, I feel the undercurrent of people don't trust authority any longer. And uh, I don't know if you can point to the Kennedy assassination or specific moments in time where people lost their uh, respect for the truth in terms of what the government or what a newspaper would be saying. But sort of like what you're saying, and as a graphic designer, I can appreciate the compositional quality of a photograph of a broken wine glass and a, a not broken wine glass wow. next to each other. But that's almost, to me, in a way of like covering Christmas by showing a holly leaf. And it's like, well, to me, that's, that's almost going out of its way to be artistically pleasing instead exactly. of showing what it actually is happening. And the same exactly. thing, with, you know, the, yes, no. there are beautiful women everywhere, but not all of them are always buried. You know, exactly. it is... Exactly. No, you've, you've made some great connections. And, you know, people say, well, what do you expect, David, the Times to run? The truth. The blur, like, you expect them to run the blurriest photograph, the most poorly composed photograph, the picture of the most unphotogenic human being every time, no, but to me, I was, the reason I, you know, stopped reading the paper and why I ended up spending years, believe it or not, collating and curating and selecting this book is that I would just, with staggering predictability, I was stunned over and over and over. The Times, it seems to me, has a kind of show Bible. That basically, if you write for an American television show, there's a thing called the show Bible, which is here are the six gestures every character can make. Like, let's say you write for Breaking Bad. Here's what the wife can do. Here's what the wife can't do. And within those parameters, each writer can have a certain amount of freedom. But, the, you know, in order to have the show have coherence and integrity, here's the show Bible, which is often a, a big binder of pages that, you know, established for each character. And it's almost to me as if the Times, it feels to me, has 
and you would know this as a graphic designer, you know, it's almost like the show Bible for what can and can't, what is and isn't going to be shown in paper. You know, there are certain rules like, well, for instance, at the, the most extreme, fascinatingly, the government has prohibited soldiers' coffins from being shown on live television or footage. And so, so that would be an extreme version of censorship. But, you know, to me, I come back to this wonderful line of Picasso's who says, um, good taste is the enemy of great art. That or makes, something right. like that. And it's that makes a lot of sense. That. Yeah. That basically, all these pictures to me, you know, the four gorgeous women, I mean, stunningly beautiful women, and the, the woman in the front is just looks like, you know, as I say, a Vogue model. And then the picture we're talking about, the Kristallnacht picture of the two facing wine glasses, so many of these pictures are exquisitely tasteful mm -hmm. in a way that makes war seem palatable. But war that, is never tasteful. Exactly. And then it's as if, really, this is war? You can't be serious. That war is a swirling chaos of frenetic horror. And these pictures keep that war at bay. They give you a pseudo glimpse of war, but here's a gorgeous sunset and a tank at the left margin of the picture. And you basically, you could say, you know, somebody took that picture. And to me, my quarrel, James, is less with the photographers, although it's partly with the photographers, but it's less with the photographers who, you know, are incredibly talented and often relatively brave, and but they are sending thousands of pictures to the Times and every other press agency. And photographers often complain that their best pictures are censored out as being too violent or, in quote, bad taste, and that oftentimes the best pictures taken out of war zones are smuggled out on, you know, obscure websites or on people's camera phones. And that basically, you know, as I say, these pictures seem to me sort of problematically tasteful. Like, yes, they're tasteful. Yes, it's like, do they all have to be so tasteful? Right. Is the sum total of the Paris bombings picture that crystal knock photo, like, I mean, I guess the, my reaction often is, really, really, that's the Paris bombing? Syrian civilians bury their dead, so we have four self-parodically gorgeous women. Like, really, that's the picture you chose? Right. That's sort of my response. Yeah. And so, you know, not everyone agrees with me. Some people say, oh, no, I feel great sorry, but I guess... My cultural intervention, going back to, you know, subtext and under, what's the word we're using? Under, undercurrents. Undercurrents, you know, is like, can we at least worry these pictures? Can we bring more intentionality to these pictures? Can we worry about purpose? Yes, we can still have aesthetically beautiful work. The beautiful can still defamiliarize us the way, say, Picasso's Guernica painting does, but can we at least question our, our purposes more? Can we not hear the unmistakable cultural reference in, say, the Times' Sunday, November 15th photo of the Paris bombings being this kind of thing that, to me, that, that picture has encoded messages. One, to me, it does look back to Kristallnacht. Two, it says Western capitalist 
democratic, bourgeois culture is really beautiful. And three, maybe war is necessary because we better preserve this, right? Because those crystal glasses are really beautiful. Yes. I'm smiling because I oftentimes feel the same way. And How so? Well, I was just thinking as you were talking, I wonder if the people of a country are better served if their head newspaper is, instead of working hand-in-hand -hand with the government, even if it's not, um, even if, it, if it's doing that behind the scenes, I wonder if people are better served if actually the head newspaper sort of operates under an uneasy truce with the government so that there's, there's more tension there. Tension causes things to grow. We, totally. we learn by failing at things. Totally. Well, it's almost like, you know, you'd almost prefer the sort of pseudo-integrity of Pravda, which is just the state organ, you know, or Fox News, which is just the state organ, relatively speaking, of the right wing, or the Wall Street Journal, which is, you know, pretty overtly, and it's, it's editorializing all about the free reign of capitalism and markets, or, or USA Today, which is this sort of, um, you know, sort of self-parodically, sort of flag-waving, hooray for America thing. Mm -hmm. And so, I think the Times has a fascinating, confused role. On the one hand, it prides itself on being the fourth estate, you know, on winning Pulitzer Prizes, on being, in a way, the fourth branch of government, on being sort of a watchdog of government. And part of its brand is that it stands askew toward the culture. So, you know, a withering review from the times of a play can, I think, still relatively speaking, sort of kill a play on Broadway. Sure. Or if the Times weighs in hugely against a government policy, you know, it can move the needle a bit in one way or the other. And, you know, the Times has done admirable war reporting, whether it was publishing the Pentagon Papers in the early 70s, or even as recently as the 2000s, Dexter Filkin did some great war reporting for the Times. And so it's not as if the Times is incapable of serious war journalism. 30 plus years ago, 60 Minutes once did a piece on the Reagan administration. They showed how there was a schism between Reagan's rhetoric and the actual policy, between the optics of the Reagan administration and, and Reagan's policies. And when they ran the piece, they thought they had done some hard-hitting piece on the Reagan administration, but the Reagan administration called 60 Minutes and said basically thanks for the 15-minute unpaid commercial because what the Reagan administration knew is that no one pays attention to the words. People pay attention to the images. And so to me, you know, as I say in the book, a Times picture is worth a, thou a thousand mirrors. Mm -hmm. Those pictures carry immense cultural resonance and ripples. Right. So that, yes, buried in the, you know, 14th column of page 27A, there might be some grisly information. And in general, the Times war reporting was really bad. You know, John Burns was an unbelievably credulous reporter in Iraq. And Judith Miller, of course, sort of infamous, infamously carried water for Bush vis-a-vis -vis, um, all sorts of, of dubious claims regarding uranium cake and all that. 
So anyway, my point, let's see, I kind of lost the train of my thought for a second here, James, but um, basically, where were I? So I well, lost my let me thought. ask you a few things. Now, you rightfully so say, and you're a writer, to me, as somebody who both writes amateurly and, I guess, professionally creates art, there's a lot of symmetry between those two mediums because it's two forms of self-expression. But I wonder if we're talking really about a few things. One, propaganda, because this is what what the saying. underlying word. Of, totally. You're saying that the Times photos are propaganda. And I'm wondering, and when I was thinking about this before I spoke with you, I said to myself, well, is, has it always been that way? And then I said, well, but the Times isn't a government agent. You could understand if Stalin's Russia is putting out constructivist propaganda posters because it's coming directly from the government yeah. or it's so obviously that the right. government is controlling the paper. We're supposed to live in a free society. Exactly. Except that that can't be true. Even when we think of the fact that America is a democracy and it's like, well, no, actually it's a democratic republic and that's very different. The issues that you're bringing to the surface here and I, and I wonder how aware the art directors are of what they're doing with these photos, or if they're just so ingrained that things need to look nice. You're a teacher. I've heard my generation and the generations in front of me speak a lot about this being the participation award era, where everybody right. needs to feel good all the time, right. which is not necessarily an accurate portrayal of life. In fact, I've always found that I've grown more as a person from the periods of depression that I've gone through or things like that because you have to dig your way out of it through progress. And Are we talking really about the overall tone of society now that people are now afraid of the truth? Well, you've made a lot of connections. There's a lot of threads that we can pull on, James. I think the one that interests me a lot right this moment is, you know, that in a way, with, you know, the admirable work of people like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Student Stephen Colbert in their previous show. Stewart, mm -hmm. of course, has, reti has retired from that, and Colbert has moved on to what 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 looks like I think is probably a more traditional talk show. Yeah. But they did, I think, good work at basically taking sort of deconstruction 101, basically taking an image or footage and showing you what's underneath that footage, you know, Stewart and his team, his staff, did a really good job of putting footage together, showing you how much, you know, prevarication, manipulation, double speak, double think, bad faith is going on on all sides of the political aisle. I think what my contribution is, the Times' brand is to pretend that it's weirdly above the fray. You know, like that we're just the Times, and that right. we're weirdly the sort of pseudo benevolent, you know, pseudo like printed truth. Yeah. And amongst a certain group of sort of middle class, middle brow, center, slightly left of center, it's that wine glass, that sort of bourgeois capitalist Western democracy, middle class, vaguely, you know, educated, literate engaged, sort of, that for that kind of group, it's sort of received truth. You know, the times really matters. That Those million people sort of matter. Like, they have what are called big mouths, in the sense that, you know, those people influence policy. And so basically, for me, I think we've learned to read against imagery. People like Stuart and Col Colbert, and before them, all these people like 
Derrida, Foucault, Christova, Lacan, all these very influential French post-structuralists and deconstructionists have taught us to read against the text. And some shows, whether in a way it's Letterman in a way, Colbert, Bill Maher in a way, Stewart, you know, they read against the text relatively well, as generations of scholars have taught us to read against a text. Mm -hmm. That's a really useful thing, to be an informed and hugely skeptical citizen. Like just the other day, I was walking around New York with my daughter, just yesterday, and she saw the red, white, and blue of Washington Square Monument. Yeah. And she read again. I was there yesterday. You were? And maybe we walked by each other because Natalie and I walked by that around 5 o'clock. That's when I was there. That's hilarious. And that she said, you know, she said, I mean, in a way she's so much my daughter, but she said, why? A hundred, you know, it's not to in any way deny the reality and horror of those deaths, but a hundred people die every day in war-related deaths. Absolutely. Why, why these 150 deaths get canonized as Viva la France, you know, like, as, and obviously there's a connection between France and the U.S. that goes back to, to the origin yeah, of the U.S. Of the U.S. Sure. And how influenced Jefferson was by French yeah. democracy and the sure. French Revolution. But those, you know, American war planes are causing hundreds of deaths on many days. You know, and it's really important to be skeptical. Like that red, white, and blue Washington Square Monument is like, wow, that's interesting. And Natalie was saying, why? You know, she wasn't being stupid. She was like, that's interesting. She was sort of saying, like, I get it, and I don't get it. How do those deaths get canonized and sanctified? Right. Those hundred deaths matter yes. in a way that'll. Other hundreds of deaths don't matter. Well, do you believe that that's because they further a narrative? That's that, a good way to say it. And what is that particular narrative, would you say, James? In my opinion, yeah. there's a lot of money to be made by keeping people segregated. We've seen it over and over in society. One of my favorite comedians who's now passed away, Patrice O'Neill, an African-American comedian, and he said, how come when Malcolm X was preaching hate, everybody left him alone, but when he came back from Mecca and preached love, he got killed? But there's money to be made in keeping people fearing the unknown. And that's on a top level of your personal safety. Will right. I, if I go to bed tonight, will I wake up tomorrow morning? In my opinion, the answer is yes, one way or another. Don't be afraid of the unknown because from my own life, anytime that I feared the unknown, it never led me anywhere to where I've gotten over it. So the only other solution is to go the other way then and go head on into something, take risks. I was walking by... Washington Square yesterday around the same time. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I saw the monument draped in red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it was nice. You admit it was definitely beautiful. Well, but here's beautiful. the thing. There was a, there was a portable black. piano and a man was playing Claire de Lune. And I'm standing there listening to Claire de Lune and staring at the Washington Monument or, you know, Washington, in Washington Square Park, I mean. And, right. And I'm just saying to my... It's almost a little bit contrived. It's, or it's, it's inauthentic. It's kitsch. It's very yeah. kitsch. Like, you know, I would say those glasses are kitsch. The, right. The four beautiful women, it's like, really? Like, there, this is so corn... Like, the cornball quotient is very high. It, I don't believe that you can... And I, I'd actually love to hit on a few points with you about this, your style of writing. I'm not sure that you can ever accurately depict life artistically. 
at the same time. Because to me, as an artist, that's through my lens. And oh. what I show you, sure, we can see... And that goes actually whether it's art or... We just look out this window and what we see. It's, oh. it's being processed through our own narrative. Oh. And that's a lot of what my previous book from 2010, The Reality Hunger, is about. Is trying, you know, of course, no art can nakedly, rawly, viscerally, literally embody life. Life is life, and art is art. And it's not as if I'm asking for or calling for the evacuation of beauty or of art or the aesthetic as part of photography or literature or visual media. But what I am asking is to bring some degree, as I say, of intentionality, of purpose. Basically, a term I find useful is this idea of hard-won beauty. Like, if there's going to be beauty in the picture or composition, can it be more hard-won than that? It has to be more hard-earned. Whereas so many of the Times picks to me are like, they're a kind of lazy beauty. Yes. It feels, they're not. They haven't earned such gorgeous sunsets. It's like, really? Time and time again. But earlier you had raised an interesting question, which I think is a very open one to me. How aware is the times of all this? First of all, am I right? Strikes me as an open question. Could be I'm over, over-reading it. Some people agree with my thesis. Some people don't. I find most people find that my argument has some traction, but some people definitely push back. But let's grant that my argument maybe has some validity. It's an honestly interesting question. I mean, like, I'd love to talk to the Times photo editor and say, what's going on here? Like, are you fully aware of this? Is this a charge to, as you say, move product? They, the Times is trying to survive. Right. And I think it's not at all clear how the Times is going to survive in the next five years to 10 years in a hyper-digitized world will exist only as one more paywall website? Is there going to be a physical paper? Is the Times hugely losing altitude? Does the Times matter anywhere but in New York? Um, people of the next generation, like I'm, I'm 59, you know, I grew up especially with, with journalist parents for whom, as I say, the Times was sort of received truth. But you're, you know, a generation or more removed from me and say among say people of your generation is the time still the sort of ten commandments tablet or is it just sort of one more website probably s- somewhere in i think between it's those somewhere in between for me because i'm of the last generation that remembers life before the internet you know i, <laughs> I was right. 10 or 11 when when it, when, when it started and really i didn't get the internet in my house and my mom is a teacher, and she's sometimes uh, anti-change. I was 13 when I got AOL. Right. And I was fortunate in a lot of other ways to come from a very self-aware household. So I was always asked, and almost to a fault, my family tends to debate things. You know, yeah, My family probably sounds like, yeah. And I, from my own schooling, I went to public school until I was going to high school. Then I went to a Jesuit Catholic high school, and then I went to Pratt Institute, an art school. So actually, what I would call, you know, you, you become 10, 11, 12 years old. You start to become a self-aware person. And I think actually you're, when you're younger than that, you are for what your world is that moment. 
But I'm fortunate enough to personally have both a very liberal and very conservative back-to-back -back schooling. Oh, between Pratt and the Jesuits. Exactly. Yeah. And, and while there's a lot of overlap there as well, do I look at the times as a godsend? I think that we're talking digital landscapes and, and the diminishing of people's attention spans. And I see it in cousins of mine who are 8, 9, 10 years old. And on one level, you want to look at them and say, they're so spoiled. But on another level, you say, but they're respectful and they're nice. So how spoiled? They're not like what you call a spoiled brat. It's just that their attention spans are so much shorter than even mine was 20 years ago. And for, in order for, in my opinion, for the times to survive with things like Huffington Post or BuzzFeed and, you know, you start to get these more and more yellow journalistic right, things. Right. You've got to print the truth, either it's visual or not, because we talk about a stream of consciousness type of writing that, that I think you employ at times. And I think you're starting to hit on in your own writing. We see the world as a certain narrative in our own eyes. So why not start to just blend what you call art and reality at the same time? Because technically that's what life is. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering in terms of the times, I think that you have, as the times, you have a responsibility to be as truthful as you possibly can be to maintain the balance. If you're going to be center, you know, you say you respect Fox News because they're not, they're unabashedly right. I mean, I'm sort of slightly kidding, but like at least, you know, I always thought of, you know, like with this book, you know, we're trying, the publisher's trying to get me on various shows and stuff, and I thought, you know, if I were, it seems unlikely that a right wing paper or, or media outlet would have me on their show, they might, because the, we might share a skepticism toward the times, but I thought if I were on such a show, I would say, you know, at least you guys are honest about your prejudice. Sure. Whereas I think as the Times is hugely confused, actually, internally, about what its purposes are. So that on the one hand, it wants to pretend to be above the fray and this kind of, as we're saying, this sort of neutral arbiter. It's a weirdly American drive to have this one city on a hill, this one Calvinist god looking over us. <laughs> All right, well, this seems like a great place to stop for now. We'll pick up part two on the 10th of December. You can get David's book, War is Beautiful. Go to Amazon, search for it. They have it there in hardcover. As you notice on the podcast, and the second half will tell the complete story, David is incredibly passionate about what we can do going forward. I think he and I both understand that, look, what's done is done. However you've been publishing these photos, New York Times, whatever you've been doing in the past, that's yesterday. Today and tomorrow, we can continue to educate the people. And like David says, you don't have to agree with him. He just wants to start a discussion. He says, and I agree with him, that even if you were to look at some of this and say, well, I don't agree with a lot of what you've just said, David, there's enough information there to at least start a conversation. And that's all he wants. It's not, if you notice in the sentiment, he doesn't really care whether you're left-wing, right-wing, whatever your political sentiment is. He just wants you, and in this case, the New York Times, us, all of us, let's own up to who we truly are on the inside. Let's express what it is that we really want to say instead of um, backhand politicking the way things could be. If you want to scratch a back and scratch someone else's back, this is what could happen. And he and I are both looking at the New York Times like that could be a reason why these kinds of photographs are getting published. So 
Stay tuned for Breaking Walls episode 30, which will air on December 10th. It'll be available for download then. And it'll be part two of my conversation with David Shields. He ties everything up. Thanks, as always, for tuning into Breaking Walls. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 29. My name is James Scully, and until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Thank you.